you can't be trying to do everything at once and make everybody happy all the time. Because what you end up experiencing is not being very good at anything and not showing up as a leader to others. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skrupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at Dr. Kevin Grigsby. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kim. Hi, everybody else. How are you? Well, everybody, Dr. Kevin Grigsby was here episode number 33, September of 2019. And on episode number 33, you will hear Kevin talk about such things as academic health centers are like tricycles where the big wheel is clinical service. Clinical service drives that tricycle. That's the big wheel. He talked with us about moral injury and how in academic health centers, we are preoccupied with making money. And yet many of us didn't join academic medicine to make money. We talked about the language of business and how important it is for us to train department chairs. A really, really great conversation. And when I, I've been just talking to Kevin before we started recording here, and I have really admired and respected Kevin for years and years, a decade or more, going back to the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges Group on Faculty Affairs, even before the GFA existed, that's when Kevin goes way back, way back. But I told, I told Kevin that I, I thought of him because I'm coaching a lot of faculty members and talking to faculty members. And there are two things that I'm seeing a thread of, and that is a need to understand and appreciate organizational savvy, as well as when we grow in our careers and how, over the life of our careers, we have opportunities to get new leadership responsibilities and positions and titles and go to different institutions. And yet some of us struggle with letting go of old responsibilities or our other responsibilities. And so we just kind of stack these on top of one another and think that we can do everything. And then we have some problems. So that's why I thought of Kevin, asked him to come here. And he, of course, kindly did so. He's back, his doctoral degree is social work. He's got a real depth of knowledge in organizational culture. I'm going to pause now and invite Kevin to tell you what he's doing now, where he is, his overarching thoughts, and he's just going to get into the topic of the day. Well, thanks, Kevin. It's great to be back and um, on another podcast. Since we last spoke, I, um, I have invoked... Um, what I am referring to as replenishment. Some people call it retirement, um, but I am in the process of replenishing. And what by that I mean, I, I don't consider myself as you know no longer working um, because I am continuing to work. I'm continuing to pursue some smaller projects that individuals have asked for some help um, in academic medicine and science um, because uh, I. I feel committed to to these organizations. I feel committed to what I've been doing for really almost 40 years now. Um, It's interesting that you bring up the topic of organizational savvy, Um, that one of the things I've been giving a lot of thought to is the way that we use that word. We talk about savvy. And 
No, generally savvy applies to a person. Um, you know, it's a person that has practical knowledge and ability. Um, and we say that they have savvy, but when you take it to the next level, and you know, I don't want to be too anthropomorphic, but there are organizations that seem to have more better, more knowledge and are better able to navigate the twists and turns of what our larger organizational culture of academic medicine and science is experiencing. One of the things that I think is key in that is having leaders who are persons who have savvy, um, who are able to to lead and essentially (laughs) create followership. Mm. Now, people say, oh, what what do you mean followership? That's, you know, we're all physicians, we're all leaders. And the answer is, I agree, we are all leaders. At the same time, we are also all followers. There are many, many leadership academies out there. You can find them all over the place. Uh, But I have not yet found a followership academy. Um, So it's, you know, the only way we can really create that is by modeling it. And I think that part of that organizational savvy and the, the savvy of our, our leaders really does have to do with knowledge. You know, do, do you know about things? Ability, are you able to do things? But there's also something else there. And that is showing up as a leader for others. It, it's leadership presence. Mm. Okay. Now, how does that relate to this idea of letting go? If you want to be a good leader and you want to, you know, to know, to do, and to be a leader, you can't be trying to do everything at once and make everybody happy all the time. Because what you end up experiencing is not being very good at anything and not showing up as a leader to others. Um, so when, when I've been coaching, um, especially department chairs, Um, and sometimes deans and associate deans, one of the things that I try and teach them is that there's a time and a place where you have to take the position where where it is, don't just do something, stand there. Rather than don't just stand there, do something. It really is about, wait, stop. Think this through. And when I say stop, you know, I, I think people... And I generally think of it as, you know, being in the moment that, you know, you're doing something else. But it also has to do with the way that organizations create savvy. So, for example, when was the last time your organization, well, ask yourself this question, consider what it should stop doing. Mm. Mm. When has your organization or your you know, the, you, you as a leader, when have you considered delegating? Mm. What, what have you looked at that you can outsource? You know, maybe you're not the best persons to be doing it. Mm. Uh, and, but it requires that point in time where you're, you really have to stop. And for so many of us, it's about stop, and you have to be in the moment. Now, I don't want to you know, sound too Zen-like, um, but it really is about sort of being present and being here and looking at the big picture. Otherwise, um, you know, 
there's something I've come to call the tyranny of the urgent. Mm. And that is when you go from fire to fire to fire. And just when you think all the fires have been put out, there is a conspiracy of interruption. Somebody lights another fire. So unless you are more or less forthright in making decisions about where you'll invest your effort and energy, you could just get swept along. Uh, Robert Keegan, who's at, uh, at Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education, years ago wrote a book called In Over Our Heads. And, you know, he sort of presaged the, the whole, you know, social media um, presence and basically said, look, there's so much coming at us that unless you are intentional about things, you'll just get swept away. So when I speak with people who are saying things like, well, are you over, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I can't get it. I'm so busy. I can't get anything done. Oftentimes I'll say, okay, well, let's take a look at some things. Let's take a look at what you might stop doing. Um, and that's very hard. And it's seldom that our organizations do that. I, uh, as I work with schools and help with strategic planning, um, now that's one of the question, first questions that I ask. Okay, what should you stop doing? Because if you don't, um, pretty soon you're trying to do everything for everybody all the time, and yeah, you're just not very good at it. Hmm. Kevin, this is amazing, and there's so, so much wisdom and depth in everything you've said. So can you paint us a picture, give us an example of either, either way, a, maybe a leader who, uh, how this will show up for them in practical terms. So help, help us, help the listener envision what this looks like for a faculty member who is prey to the tyranny of the urgent conspiracy of the interruption and we'll say, as I call them, the yabbits. The yabbits are the yeah, but. Like they'll say, yeah, that sounds right, Kim. And yeah, time management is a problem for me. And yeah, I hear what you're saying. We should stop that, delegate that, outsource that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. So how- Well, a great place to start is with meetings. Okay. What Have you noticed, uh, I've heard just about everyone I know has said to me, you know, now that we're working remotely, we have so many more meetings. Hmm. And I've said, you know, that is tragic um, because we probably need to have less meetings. Um, we need to use meetings for what meetings are supposed to be. And they are for doing things like making decisions or coming to consensus rather than just sharing information. So I encourage people to do inventory. Um, you, if you are in a leadership position, it, it not, may not be something that you can do on your own. You may need to get an administrative assistant or someone else to help you, but take a look at, at a week and look at all of the meetings, say last week, or even, you know, because meetings cycle through, they're usually almost on a monthly, quarterly, ideally, if you could do it quarterly, you could do it, you might have to do it annually. But look at all the meetings and start with sort of a hierarchy 
the hierarchy of regulation, okay? And that means, all right, what meetings do you have to have? Okay, if there is a meeting that is required by the JC, you know, the Joint Commission, you have to go. If there's a meeting, an LCME type, you have to be. So first, catalog those meetings, okay? The second are meetings where you find them to be of import, you feel it's essential that you be there, but there's no law or regulation um, you know, that mandates that, but, but you ought to be there, in, at least in your opinion, and probably in the opinion of many others. But go through that. Go, go through and start looking at all the meetings that you have to go to, that you want to go to, but then eventually you'll get to these other meetings. And those other meetings are something you should really take a look at. Is it worth your effort to be there? Okay. So that's step one, is sort of inventory and say, okay, what can I stop doing? The second thing is to look at frequency. How often are meetings happening? You and I have been in that on that committee where we met for an hour last week. We talked about something. We didn't do anything. Uh, we met again this week and we talked about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's because we were stuck in the knowing doing gap. And the knowing doing gap, you can find this in the literature, the business literature. It, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. As level of education goes up, the tendency to do it goes up. And that's when you make the mistake of thinking that talking about something is the same as doing something. <laughs> oh, the, the bane of my existence, the people who insist on, let's have a conversation. I always kind of, that's nails on the chalkboard for me when someone says, we need to have a conversation. Oh boy, that's inversely proportional in my world to getting things done. Yeah. So take a look at, you know, um, you know are you really, do you really need to meet that often? The third thing is then to take a look, and this is, relates more to your organization too. How many people are at the meeting? Mm. Now, we know that, you know, that, that sort of magic window of five to nine, you know, is, is, is about the right size to get things done. But wait until you try and do that, and suddenly everybody feels that everybody has to be represented. And now it, it, it suddenly you're, you're in these huge meetings. I've been, you know, found search committees with 21 members. That's a really big search committee. And that's a lot of time. If you want to do something interesting, have your business manager or calculate the burn rate. Mm. What does it cost for you and all those other people? Take a look at salary, benefits, et cetera. What's the cost to have that meeting? No, okay. no. So that's one way to, 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 to do that. When you've you know, kind of done that inventory, the next thing to do is to go back through your calendar and moving forward in time, start recognizing which meetings you're not going to attend or which meetings don't really need to happen at all. Hmm. And then, of course, there's always improving the performance uh, at meetings, improving meeting performance. And actually, Jen Schlenner, um, who's the chief of staff at the AAMC, does a great workshop on how to have a meeting. Hmm. 
And so those are the kinds of, of things that I suggest when people are feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that often when I say that, they will say in response, well, where am I going to get the time to do that? Mm -hmm. um, in general, I think the better question is, why have you not yet done that? Because that really is an important part of being a leader is you know, not allowing yourself to be buffeted about by, you know, the wind, the rain, you know, the, the flood, uh, the current, and instead being forthright and, and being um, intentional in what you do. Mm -hmm. Kevin, how do you, or how can you guide us in getting over that, um, concern or worry about how people are perceiving me as a leader if I'm not paying attention to all these details, all these meetings, not coming, that dean or that department director isn't coming to my meetings or doesn't seem to know um, what's happening in this lab or that lab. So I'm from the leader's perspective, I sometimes feel that they need, they think that they need to do all these things, lest the people view them as being a bad leader because they are not caring about these things. So how do you, I guess the question is, what can we do to shore up the confidence in new leaders or existing leaders to realize the, how people perceive you? Maybe you shouldn't be necessarily preoccupied with that. I don't know if I'm being clear. Do you kind of get what I'm trying to say? Well, I think what you're saying is how do you create leadership present? Mm. How do you show up for others without having to be at every single meeting? And the way that that happens is by, for one thing, creating an, um, you know, an administrative strategy. Who, you know, do you have persons to whom you are delegating mm. certain aspects? And you know those those things should happen. For example, um, you know, do you have in in the way that dean's offices are organized? What what's the strategy? Is it by function? Is it by mission? Don't forget what dean means. The word dean comes from decanal or decade, meaning leader of ten. <laughs> okay. What's most important for that dean is to show up and lead those ten who are going to then show up as leaders for others. But having an organizational strategy as to how that, that plays out is really important. Um, I, I think, you know, as I've worked with, and I, I counted them uh, as I was approaching my period of replenishment, I have now worked at the division, department, or school level with 85 LCME schools and some uh, some um, osteopathic schools as well. So in working with those schools, one of the things that I found is that so often the dean's office infrastructure has been created sort of by tradition. It has been there to, you know, things have happened over the years. And so you find things like proliferation of assistant deans where it isn't really clean, clear what their dean function is. Oftentimes you find they may have been given that title as a retention 
Yeah. Other times you find honorific persons, a senior associate dean for clinical research, but there's no budget mm. and there's no personnel. <laughs> so it's these kinds of things. So one of the things that's important is to really examine dec- you know, the dean's office and saying, okay, how's this going to make sense? And how is this going to help us get the work done? So when there is no doubt that every dean, every associate dean, every department chair, there is somebody who is ready to fill your schedule fuller than it can be. And so being very strategic in the way that you accept meetings, in the way that you structure them, and the way that you delegate and also to outsource. So let, let me give you an example of outsourcing. Uh, one of the schools had uh, that I worked with had a department of orthopedics. And over the years, they had a, a division within it of prosthetics. Um, uh, you know, they, they created prosthetics and, and for, the, for their patients. They, they weren't doing research. There was no training program involved. They were just an in-house shop. Well, what we found when we took a closer look is that the wait, the patients waiting for to get a, an appliance, it was longer than they could, you know, than in the market, hmm. than out, you know, using an independent contractor. And we also found that the quality was better by the these, at, you know, sort of private contractors, and. What happened is to say, you know, is this something we really should be doing? You know, it's uh, it wasn't a question of is this UBIT unrelated business income and subject to taxation. I mean, it had a quasi, I guess, business relationship that was reasonable because they were providing these appliances only for patients. They didn't give them. Well, what it turned out is that upon further examination. Um, one of the companies actually wanted to said, look, why don't you let us do it? We'll lease the space from you. We'll hire all you, all the people that work there and we'll turn it around. Yeah. Okay. Well, the school stopped that. And, you know, now there's another enterprise that takes care of that. That's one of those examples of you know, kind of being fearful <laughs> of stopping it when, no, that should have happened a long time ago. Uh, that's a great example, Kevin. And I, it's making me think of the whole pandemic when many people were pushed home to work from home. And then here, here at Hopkins, we had a last the summer, late summer of 2021, a return to work. And then there's a little bit of pushback by some groups, especially some staff who after you know a year and a half had figured out that this working at home was working out for them. It was better for their childcare situation. It saved commuting time. It saved gas and parking money and lunch money. And really, they were able to fit in a lot of you know, after-school care issues. And they said, well, why do I have to come back? I've demonstrated my efficiency and actually increased productivity staying at home. And it really, you know, made us rethink 
these mandates of going back to just, that's just the way we do things. Well, of course, now that COVID's over, come on back to work. And then people are like, well, no, I don't. I don't well, work. one of the <laughs> things, one of the things that happened was the assumption that working in an office or working on site was preferable, that that was, and everybody kind of started with that in mind and said, okay, well, we'll do that. But let's see, there might be some people who can work from home. The, the organizations, if you go to the literature and look at, look at the business literature, the organizations who are having the most success start with the idea, okay, let's start with the idea that everybody can work remotely and then work our way back. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, there are some people that, you know, some functions, et cetera, where you can't do it remotely. It, or if you do it remotely, you get a product that isn't as good. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of that um, from my own work. One of the things that we do, and I did at the AAMC, was to work with organizations by going on site and immersing ourselves in the culture, a true sort of ethnographic approach. And it allowed us to really get a feel and oftentimes hear what was unspoken and see what was unseen to many of the persons there. Well, when we could no longer do that, we had to adapt. And we adapted our strategy and and used a mechanism by having open-ended conversations with lots and lots of people, um, you know, looking for things. And we were able to do some of what we did, but not all of what we did. And so, um, you know, the, ideally, um, you know, there's probably part of that that could that can still be done remotely. But there's another part of it, another element that really can't. You really can't do it. It's you know, it's ethnography by proxy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's going to mm-hmm. work because, in many ways, you know, the 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 person who the ethnographer is the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, so being in the culture, um, and so you can see things like the way that people nod to one another mm. and who they nod to and things like that. To, I, what I'm hearing is a reminder in my head to test assumptions, test our personal assumptions. It's kind of the root of all communication and misunderstandings, right? Is I make assumptions about you and about myself and about situations, but also organizations making assumptions of how a dean's office should be organized, how a department should run, how this lab should work. So to me, that is this, um, any big moments or, or seminal events are opportunities to, as you gave the examples of outsourcing, delegating, stopping, let's pause a moment Let's rethink where where's my start line? What, what assumptions am I making? And maybe let's step that back and rethink just because we do things this way or just because my predecessor did something this way. Yes, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't necessarily have to upend everything, but take moments in time to test what if, what else, what's another framework or lens of looking at something. I think that's great. Well, one of the the things that I've encountered more than once is working with 
schools that are in very rural areas. Um, and, you know, they, they're in, often in a town, that sort of thing. But there is a, there's a surplus, not a surplus of land, but there's plenty of open space. But the organization charges employees for parking. Mm. Okay. It creates real cognitive dissonance for the employees because it's like, well, wait a minute. I, you know, there's all this place to park, but I got to pay to park. You know, are you really, you know, organizations need to ask the question, are you really gaining from that? Or are you, you know, would the amount of goodwill that you created mm-hmm. allow you to reap many more benefits? Mm. But but the assumption is, well, there's a potential revenue source. Um, no, it's it's other things. I, I think sometimes people want to engage students, and students express an interest in being engaged in curricular activities. Okay, well, let's not forget that the faculty and staff that are on those committees are being compensated and paid. Those students and uh, are paying tuition, mm-hmm. and so you know, it, it's a, a fine. It's a delicate balance because. We need to really consider, is that fair? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, your, your comment about letting go, I think one of the things that leads to the ability to let, it, to let go is to stop, <laughs> is, is to stop and really you know, sort of be in the moment. Really, don't just do something. Really take a look, get a better understanding. And questioning assumptions mm-hmm. is a very good way to do that. Don't just do something, stand there. That's hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just do something. Because we are all in this mode of hurry up, hurry up, quick answer, you know, um, firing off responses, thinking, fast thinking, fast thinking, fast thinking. And I know I do that as well. And I see that model when you can just sit back, as you mentioned, ethnographically and observe people on Zoom and in meetings, that desire to be the first one to give the answer, figure it out, move on, and not recognizing, using emotional intelligence to recognize that there's things, there are things that may not be being said, or we're in to group think or we've made a bunch of assumptions and jumped way ahead of ourselves. And um, I love all your reminders of stopping, delegating, outsourcing, um, questioning our assumptions. This is, I think you've given us some great advice. I love, I, I, I hope everyone listening had heard your very first practical approach, just take an inventory of our calendars. And, oh, that's right, I did make a note here, Kevin, one, one last question for you. For the faculty members who are listening to the podcast who are earlier in their careers, how do we help them, um, the, this fear of having to be the, the, good, the good neighbor, the good community player, the good team player, and not in this inability or this perceived inability to say no, and this feeling like they're po- perhaps powerless. What words of wisdom can you share with earlier career faculty members about? Well, I, I, I think one of the things that's important to remember is the role of the department chair. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the department chair is really the, 
you know, every, every school has HR departments. But in terms of managing the faculty and managing faculty effort, that is one of the four core elements of every department chair's job. You, you've got to do that. And so when department chairs are very clear about allocating effort, you know, what portion goes to research, what portion goes to teaching, what portion goes, you know, breaking it down into a minimum of four buckets, you know, which is, and, you know, the fourth bucket is, is really service uh, at land grant schools. Sometimes you need to also say community engagement, um, but breaking it and, and helping faculty to understand how much of their effort they should be putting into those things. It also allows faculty members to be able to, when they're asked to do another, yet another thing, to be able to say, I'm already committed at this amount. What would you like me to stop doing? Mm. What should I, where should I shift? Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I really think that that can be valuable. Back in the late 90s, when I was at the Medical College of Georgia, we were one of the first schools to do uh, mission-based management. And I was, I, was, uh, I was still an associate professor when we started. I was promoted by, to professor by the time we were finished. But one of the things that I found is it was liberating. I knew by looking at my effort, I knew where I was supposed to be investing and how much for how long. And so when I knew that, it wasn't just me trying to juggle all these things that people were throwing at me. And I found it to be very helpful. Um, other people have taken the position to say, well, you're encroaching upon my academic freedom. Um, I need to make those decisions. Well, the answer is, well, if, if you were the one that could make all those decisions, that would be great, but you're not. Mm. So, you know, how can we find that place that's equitable, that's fair, where the organization's expectations and your expectations are aligned? Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Kevin. Mission-Based Management, University of Georgia. I have one question that may be too big for the rest of this conversation now, but when we talk about percent effort, allocating effort, percent effort, how much time toward clinical research, teaching, service, community, what's the denominator? Well, the NIH has been really helpful with that because the NIH has been very clear that they don't pay for hours. They pay for effort. And everybody is 100% effort. Okay. So we have, and if you go and talk to our colleagues with the standpoint surveys, when they do the surveys, they look at the amount, number of hours, okay, and translate it into effort. And, and what we see is that it's pretty, pretty well defined in overall, um, you know, and it varies from school to school, but, you know, it's in the 55 to 65 hour range. Um, but for some, you know, that, that, you know, that's a mean, I mean, for some it's more, for some it's less, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it, it's what, how much can you get the work done? Mm -hmm. What does it take to get the work done? Um, at times, um, I think, you know, it's, it's also very uneven. Um, there are weeks where things are pretty light. 
But then there are those weeks where things were terrible. One of the big issues for the pandemic during the pandemic is it upset everything. Mm -hmm. And people were working an inordinate number of hours. And essentially, you know, it's, you know, it'd be different if you, you know, it was an assembly line or something, but it wasn't. They were saving people's lives. Right. if you're going to invest more effort and save people's lives, well, that's pretty much the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> but that's in a pandemic situation. When when that, you know, now that we're moving into um, a, a time of COVID being endemic, perhaps, um, you know, that's going to need to be reshuffled. At the same time, we also see the ill effects, and we talked about this on the last po- podcast, are of moral injury mm-hmm. around when people are asked to do things that they know are not the right things to do, but they have to. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's too uh, not specific enough of an answer. No, I, I think it is because we are, you know, at Hopkins, we're talking about effort. And what does that mean? Is it... Um, these re- maybe new reporting modules that staff are being asked to complete for faculty and faculty are saying, well, it's just, you know, the weekends that my hours between midnight and 4 a.m. are the only times that I can do my research and trying to accommodate where we're going and traveling and what work we're doing and when we're doing it. And somebody on the chat said, well, I guess back to the old punch cards, you know, punch in and punch out every time we do something. It's, it's, well, if that is the case, then I, I think perhaps the Department of Labor needs to get involved because we've become hourly employees mm-hmm. and there is a cap on hourly employment. It's 40 hours. Mm-hmm. And when you get above that, you're entitled to time and a half. So, I mean, it, it's a conundrum. Right. Um, at the same time, um, you know, it, 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 we create a lot of problems with it. So, for example, Bill Mallon and I, my, my colleague and co-author, Bill and I wrote three books over the last four years. Okay, I would say that of that writing, the majority of it was done on airplanes. Okay, So was I traveling or was I writing a book? Right. Right. <laughs> That's the... Yeah, uh, I, that, that, that you're exactly right. That is the conundrum because when... Well, that's a whole, it's a whole other podcast episode, but we, I see the fatigue of our faculty. I see the um, extreme stress and anxiety and right. How do you have to then justify every moment of being awake and what you're doing? And if we have to add another layer of then having to justify that the time and when, when are you actually doing that work on driving? Are you driving home or are you dictating or, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. And that does contribute to, as you talked about in episode 33 and the moral injury. So fascinating. Well, you've given us a lot of great things to think about as always. This is Kevin Grigsby in his replenishment season. And I love that so, so much. Um, Kevin, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? If oh, they- I'm hiding. You know- <laughs> Um, actually, I'm no longer on LinkedIn and I'm not on Facebook. Um, I have uh, decided I, I've been a long time Twitter quitter. 
and I've never been on Instagram. And one of the reasons is because that was too much. Mm. It was too much to keep. It was something that I didn't have to do, and I stopped doing it. However, I'm pretty easy to find uh, on Gmail. And um, also, uh, the AAMC knows how to find me should someone want to talk with me. So. Very well said. And you are a person who leads by example. Friends, uh, you've been learning a lot and hopefully have a lot of great ideas from Dr. Kevin Grigsby, one of the leaders in our field. Um, why don't you consider doing an inventory of your meetings and think about what you can stop doing, what you can delegate, and what you can outsource. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope things, uh, I hope the podcasts continue and that everyone is enjoying them. Thank you. It's a nice, great of you to do this. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.